Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. If you've got a Bible, go to Revelation chapter four, and we're gonna talk about worship. We're a brand new church, and I wanna to explain to you how we see worship and who we worship and why we worship and when we worship and how we worship. And I'll start with a story. I was the first man in my family to ever go to college. And so I ended up going to a state university and I was exposed to, if you've been to college, you've had this experience, all these different ideas that I had never really considered before. Different philosophies, different religions, different opinions about the big issues of life, where we come from, why we're here, where we're going. And all of a sudden I was not a Christian, but I was considering all of these ideas in sociology and history and philosophy. And I'll never forget, I walked up to one of my sociology professors and I said, okay, you've just kind of presented different views of reality from different groups of people. I said, what is your view? I said, do you think that there's a God, not a God, a heaven, a hell? Like, what, where, where are you at? And he said, all I believe in is the material. He tapped the desk, the, the physical. He said, I believe that's all we have and all we are. He said, I don't believe we have an invisible immaterial soul. I don't believe there's some spiritual God. I don't believe anything happens after you die. You just cease to exist. I said, well, how do you explain everything? He said, everything is the result of material collision and interaction. So I remember he had a, a wife and I said, do you love your wife? He said, yes, I do. And I said, why? He said, I guess her chemistry and my chemistry together gives me something that feels like love, but it's really just the collision of physical. I said, I bet you don't tell her that on Valentine's Day, <laughs> right? You don't tell her. We're just two bodies that happen to collide and the chemistry was good. So we feel like we love each other, but there's nothing really immaterial at the heart of the soul level. And I found his answer to be rather devoid of meaningfulness. Really, we're, we come from nowhere, we're here for nothing, we're going nowhere, we have no soul, we're just basically you know, glorified animals with thumbs who got lucky in the evolutionary process. Now, that's, that's not super warm and compelling. So then I had a philosophy class and I was this curious nerd kid. So I walked up to my philosophy professor and I asked him the same thing. I said, well, what do you think? What's your take? He said, I think we're not just physical material. I think we're also spiritual. He said, I think there's a part of us that we see in the body, part of us that we don't see in the soul. He said, I, I think that in addition to the world that we do see, there's an immaterial, invisible, supernatural, spiritual world in which God dwells. I said, so you think there's a God? He said, yes, I do. I said, I said do you think that we came from God? He said, yes, I do. I said, do you think that we'll stand before God when we die? He says, yes, you will. I was like, I will. That got personal all of a sudden. Uh, he said, yeah, do you know Jesus? I was like, I, I, I heard about him. I don't know if we like were besties, but yeah, I mean, I heard about him. And he said, uh, he said you need to really consider Jesus. He, he was a Christian and, and, and he was a philosophy professor at a state university. I said, you're a Christian? He's like, yeah. I was like, what are you doing here? You know, you're a philosophy professor at a state university. I probably found the only one who loved Jesus in the whole country. So I stumbled upon the spiritual unicorn, this Bible-believing, God-fearing, evangelical Christian who loved Jesus. And he said, you have a soul. It belongs to God. You will die and live forever. And you really need to consider the claims of Jesus. Oh, so I started at that time, I was already reading my Bible, but I started really digging in. And I came to realize that Christians don't just disagree with non-Christians about some things, we disagree about all things. That really, if you do not hold a biblical view of the world, then you will not believe that we are a body and a soul, that we come from God, we belong to God, and we give an account to God, and that changes everything in the totality of your entire life. I believe that you're not just a body, you're also a soul. I believe that God made you. I believe that you need God and life apart from God is not the life that God created you for, which is why we are miserable when we live our life or any aspect of our life apart from God. I believe that when you die, you will stand before God and give an account and you will live forever. The question is whether you'll live in heaven or hell, but the question is not, will you live? 
And living in light of that reality, it changes every aspect of life on the earth. If we believe that there is a spiritual world that we do not see and that it is connected to the physical world that we do see, then we live this life in light of that reality and in light of that eternity. And what that means is that many of the struggles and the temptations and the frustrations and the wars and the collisions and even the political conflicts that we are experiencing is, as the Bible says, not just flesh and blood, not just material and physical, it's immaterial and spiritual. That behind this world is a world that we don't often see, but if we understand that this world is connected to that world and that that world in influences and is affected by this world and they work in concert with one another, then we realize that what we are doing and how we are living and what we are thinking, it takes on cosmic, supernatural, eternal implications. And upon occasion, as we're living our life in this material world, we're eating our food, we're putting our shoes on, we're getting in our car, we're going to our place of employment or recreation, that behind that is a world that we rarely or seldom see. And when we do, it provides insight for the world we do see. And what we're gonna look at today in Revelation chapter four is one of those rare occasions in history and scripture where the veil is removed and those in the physical world get to peer into the spiritual world. We get to depart the world in which we live and we get to enter into the world in which God lives. We no longer just see things from our perspective, but we see things from his reality. And so the story begins, and we're talking ultimately about worship, and I'll just give you the, the definition of corporate congregational coming together worship for us. It is the people of God in the presence of God giving praise to God. That's what it is. It's the people of God in the presence of God giving praise to God, and that's what we're doing together today. So it begins with the people of God in Revelation 4. One, this is the last book of the Bible. This is the glimpse into eternal history. This is sort of standing on the precipice of the end of the age and gazing headlong into what will be our only reality forever once this world and our life on it comes to an end. After this, he says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now the man who says this, his name is John. He's already told us in chapters one and two that he was a friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus. Jesus, while he was alive on the earth, he had 12 disciples and John was the youngest among them. He was the one whom Jesus loved. They were close. They were dear, close friends. And John had seen Jesus die on the cross, he had seen Jesus raise in triumphant victory over sin and death. He had seen Jesus appear for 40 days to crowds upwards of 500, and then he saw Jesus ascend into heaven. John then was a pastor who proclaimed the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. At this point, all of the other disciples had died brutal and bloody martyrs' death, including his own brother, James. Jesus appointed these leaders to carry forth his message. They are all deceased with the exception of John. They tried to kill John. They boiled him alive and he didn't die. So they exiled him to a place called Patmos. It's a penal colony and it is a barren, desolate place. My family and I have been there. You take a boat out in this saltwater sea. It is very windy, high seas, very desolate. It is very dry. You enter into this small island. It's all jagged rocks. Nothing can grow there. That's where they exiled John. History and tradition says that he spent his time in a particular cave. We've been there to visit that place where John was. He tells us early in the book that he was there on the Lord's day. That is the day of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Sunday. And as he is there, he has this amazing experience where he is somehow supernaturally, spiritually transported from the physical world to the spiritual world. The veil between the two is removed and he gets to enter into the presence of God. John is one of the people of God. And when it says that this door opened, it means that John now has a perspective. He has a reality that previously he did not enjoy. This is one that you and I need to learn, that we need to embrace, that we need to share in. 
that we don't just look at our life, we look at our life from God's perspective. We don't just look at our world, we look at our world from God's perspective. And that is what he is going to have as one of God's people. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. When your life comes to an end, your life really begins. When your life comes to an end, your life really begins. And this angel is telling him, come up here, come with us, come into the presence of God, see from the perspective of God, join with the people of God and see what awaits you on the other side of life, on that planet, in his presence. So he is among the people of God and he is transported into the presence of God, the very presence of God. So the story continues in the next section, Revelation 4, 2 through 8. At once I was in the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. This is supernatural divine revelation. We live in a world filled with speculation where theologians and philosophers will provide conjecture. Maybe God is like this. Maybe God is like that. This is revelation. This is God revealing himself. This is God showing us and telling us who he is by the power, by the person, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You and I are to live in the presence of God and Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit so that the third member of the Trinity would be in the people of God, would be present with the people of God so that we were not orphaned or abandoned and the Holy Spirit in us and through us, he is that open door, so to speak, between the reality of God's presence in glory and our reality here in God's history. So by the power of the Spirit, he says, he sees this, a throne stood in heaven. And I want you to denote and note that. This issue of the throne is incredibly important to the whole Bible, the book of Revelation, but especially chapter four. There's about 200 occasions where a throne appears in the Bible. The majority of the times in the New Testament appears in this book, Revelation, and the most highest concentration of numerical appearances of the throne is in Revelation chapter four. This is the piece of furniture. All creation centers around the throne, centers around the throne. That all glory, all praise, all majesty, all honor, it goes to the throne from all creation. That all revelation, that all salvation proceeds from the throne. That all of the energy of human history and all that is created goes to the throne, comes from the throne, is connected to the throne, has relationship with the throne, and the throne is the center of history. I need you to know this. When you die, you will not stand before a mirror. You will stand before a throne. And you will not judge yourself. You will be judged by the one on the throne. And the eternal gaze of your focus will not be upon your glorious reflection in a mirror. It'll be upon the one seated on the throne. This is reality. I need you to know, friend, this is reality right now. Here we sit, there he sits. You need to know that right now, the Lord Jesus is not in humility, he is in glory. He is not a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. That was a temporary mission for our salvation 2000 years ago. Upon his ascension into heaven, he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, high and exalted, ruling and reigning over all, being worshiped by every created being in his presence and that he alone sits on a throne. When you think of singing to Jesus, you think of him in glory. When you think of praying to Jesus, you think of him in glory. When you think of seeking Jesus, you seek him in glory. We do not worship a marginalized, humble, Galilean peasant. He did that for a season to identify with us. Once he has saved us, he has returned to his eternal rule and reign from his throne. You need to know that most people's view of Jesus is far too small. And as a result, their problems become far too big. And here we see the throne. Here we see the throne. And the throne is so important because in that culture, people sat on the floor, they reclined. Very few people sat on the throne. Those who sat on the throne tended to be the priests who would mediate between God and the people. It would tend to be the kings who would rule and reign over their kingdom and dominion and authority. 
And after a soldier returned from battle in triumphant victory, they would be seated on a throne, a holiday would be celebrated, and the people would cheer their praises while that triumphant warrior who brought them peace was celebrated. And in sitting upon the throne, Jesus is all three. He is our priest who mediates between us and God. He is our king who rules over a kingdom that has no end. And he is our triumphant warrior who has conquered Satan's sin and death. He has slayed them through the shedding of his own blood and he has walked over them as he walked away from his own grave. And so as you think of Jesus, as you contemplate Jesus, as you consider Jesus, I need you to know who Jesus is right now, what Jesus is doing right now, where Jesus is right now, what Jesus is seeing and hearing right now, because that is reality. This is temporary. That's where we'll be forever. And our journey here is to prepare us for there. This is incredibly important. This is not a part of your life, this is your whole life. Because all that you have, all that you are, all that you do, it occurs under the one seated on that throne. And he who sat there had the appearance, it's gonna get real arty. How many of you are creative? You're like, I like color, I like shape, I like design, so does God. He's creator, he's creative, he's beautiful, majestic, and glorious. And as we talk about what John sees in the presence of the unveiled glory of God, human language strains to articulate it. You're gonna hear the words like and as because God is so glorious. God is so absolutely other that we strain and struggle with the limits of human language to articulate that which is beyond our full comprehension. So here's what he sees in the presence of this risen, resurrected, reigning redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian around the throne was a rainbow. Isn't it interesting how these typologies have been taken? Was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones, little thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. These are religious leaders. The first rule of a religious leader is to be a worshiper. This might be the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, 24 in total. Clothed in white garments, what color are they wearing? White, because this is what God's people who are saved and sealed by God are given to wear. Righteousness, cleanness. You, my friend, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, I have such good news for you. You're not just forgiven, you're clean. You, you're, you're clean. God doesn't just forgive you, he cleanses you. He takes away your unrighteousness. He is altogether holy, you are unholy. He is good, you are bad. You are one who is not able to stand in the presence of a holy, righteous, clean, and good God. But Jesus stood in your place so that you could stand in his place. The story of the Bible is that Jesus took your place. He took all of your sin, all of your unholiness, all of your rebellion, all of your defilement, and he took it upon himself and he suffered and died on the cross in death for your sins. And then he clothes you in all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his obedience, all of his goodness. So he wears what you have earned and you wear what he has earned. And this is why when God's people worship God in the Bible, they wear white. When they come to worship God, they wear white. This is why at the end of the book of Revelation, the whole church, the bride of Christ, it's like a wedding day and she is wearing white. Ladies, I don't care what you've done or what's been done to you. If you belong to Jesus, you wear white on your wedding day because God's people will be wearing white forever, showing that in Christ, we're not only forgiven, we are righteous and made clean. You need to know that. Some of you struggle when you come to worship. You think, what I said this week, what I did this week, how I felt this week, I feel dirty, I feel defiled, I feel unclean, I feel like a hypocrite. That's why you give it to Jesus, you receive his righteousness, and then you enter into worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the story continues. They were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. These are kings and rulers with majesty and power and authority and wealth. 
And they are in the presence of God and from the throne. So everything comes from the throne. All life, all judgment, all justice, all truth, all revelation, all redemption. It comes from one seated upon the throne. So there's God the Father in all of his glory. There's the Lord Jesus seated upon his throne at the right hand of the Father. And there is the Holy Spirit connecting God's people on earth with God's presence in heaven and that door between the two is opened so that God's people can be in God's presence. You and I only live in God's presence. Anytime we are separated from God's presence, we are living a life that is separated from the source of all life. And here is what he sees. Lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Perhaps a creative reference to the Holy Spirit. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. These are angelic beings full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them. Here's what we see, a throne. The glory of God the Father is unveiled. Here is the Lord Jesus seated upon his throne. Surrounding is a worship event like you and I have never experienced. All of the senses are engaged, the colors, the lighting, the music, the singing, the smell of incense. It's, it's an entire physical experience. You and I were made to worship. And when we don't worship God, we worship someone or something else. They are in the presence of God and they're worshiping God. When you don't understand the presence of God, you seek the presence of someone or something else to worship. And by worship, I mean this, who is at the center of your life? What is at the center of your life? Who or what is preeminent, significant, prominent for you? Who or what do you make sacrifices for? Where does your identity come from? You see, the alcoholic worships alcohol. The drug addict worships drugs. The codependent relationship worships another person for an emotional need. The workaholic worships their job and their performance and their resume. And we were all made to worship. And we're always all worshiping. The only difference is who or what is the object of our worship. It is amazing to me if you will overlay this truth throughout all of life. I was thinking about this recently. It was my birthday, uh, turned 46, and the kids wanted to go for a hike. And so they had the day off of school. So they decided, hey, let's go hike up in Sedona. How many of you have been up to Sedona? This time of year, let's just use a good Bible word, it's glorious, right? It's glorious. The river's running in North Sedona and the trees are flourishing. The leaves are changing colors. It was a 70 some degree day with a light breeze. Uh, it was glorious, right? I mean, it was so beautiful. You're like, yeah, people wanna die and go to Sedona. I mean, this is a nice place to be. But you know what people do when they get to Sedona? They worship. You know what they worship? the red rocks that God made. People will travel from around the world to stand before something that God made and when the light reflects off of the streams and the trees and the red rocks, people literally worship the created rather than the creator. It is an incredibly spiritual, supernatural and pagan area. And it's heartbreaking. It's you're worshiping what was made. You should get to know he who made it. This is just an infinitesimal glimpse of his glory. This is just a little reflection of his beauty. If you're so hungry, if you're so desperate, if you're so thirsty for glory that you're willing to travel to Sedona and have that be your object of worship, 
you have fallen short of the glory of God. You've fallen short of seeing the creator. We do this all the time. Find someone that is beautiful and gaze upon them. It's a worship act. Go to a place and gaze upon it. It's a worship act. There's nothing wrong with loving the things that God has made, but there's everything wrong with worshiping what God has made rather than the God who has made it. If you drive a little further, what's the great thing that you see? Keep driving north of Sedona. Where do you end up? The Grand Canyon. Let's just use a good Bible word. The Glorious Canyon. Let me let, I, it's a hole in the dirt, okay? Let me just, it's a hole in the dirt. And you'd say, but that's an amazing hole in the dirt. Okay, I'll give you that. It's an amazing hole in the dirt. People come from all over the world so that they can what? Stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and feel awe, to feel small, to feel overwhelmed, to feel like they're not the center of the universe, like they're not the most important person or place, to feel that the world is much bigger than they are, and they are very small, and they like to be in the presence of something greater and more glorious and more grand, and they love that awe-inspiring feeling of feeling small and insignificant. That's worship. That's what we're made for. And when you know the God of the Bible, when you meet the God of the Bible, when you start to believe what the scriptures say about the God of the Bible, you appreciate, you enjoy creation, but you won't settle for worshiping anything other than creator. That feeling of transcendence, that feeling of majesty, that feeling of awe, that, that affectional release of insignificance and my place in the universe and something bigger than me is here and I'm just pleased to be in its presence. That longing, that thirst, that appetite, that hunger is the human condition made by God to worship God is dissatisfied, unsatisfied until God is worshiped. That's why everyone who worships anything other than the God of the Bible or anyone other than the God of the Bible ends up in misery because it's idolatry. I want you to know that this is what's happening right now. This is reality for all eternity. This is where the Lord Jesus is present. This is what the angels are doing. This is what the departed saints and leaders are participating in. people of God and the presence of God singing the praises of God. That's the next. Day and night. Day and night. Unceasing worship. Unceasing worship. Do you know that you can pray without ceasing? The Bible tells you to. You can worship without ceasing. That is living your life by the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit to praise to God. You can live a life of worship by being a person of God, understanding and living in the spiritual reality of the presence of God, using every opportunity to give praise to God. Day and night, they never cease to say, they're singing, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the same experience that Isaiah had some seven or 800 years prior. In Isaiah six, he says that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, the exact same experience. John chapter 12, verse 41, if my memory's correct, says that he saw Jesus in all of his glory. So before he even walked on the earth, as a man, the Lord Jesus ruled from a throne in heaven. Isaiah saw him in all of his glory, like John saw him in all of his glory. And they both heard, I can't even fathom the acoustics and what this sounded like, but they heard the angels day and night surrounding the throne of Jesus, crying out, calling out, claiming out, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You and I need to understand that the attribute of God that is mentioned more than any other attribute in the Bible is the holiness of God. That means that God is different, that God is other, that God is unlike us. 
that we do not want to create a false theology that makes God like us. We want a true theology where God makes us like his son, Jesus, that he is holy, that he is glorious, that he is perfect in all of his ways, that he is altogether good in the source of all life. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was eternity past, creator, not created, no beginning, the uncaused cause, who is, who is, who is, and who is to come. And we are awaiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus. There will be a day when not only does a man like John or Isaiah pass temporarily through that open door of opportunity to gaze into God's eternal presence, there will be a day when the Lord Jesus Christ passes through that door, enters into our world. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more wars. There will be no more elections. There will be one throne, and on that throne will rule one king over all people's times and places, that he will bring love, that he will bring mercy, that he will bring justice, that he will bring truth, that he will put down his enemies, and he will bring up his family, and will dwell together in the presence of God, and that which was breached through sin, so that there was a separation between this physical world and this spiritual world, it'll be altogether eradicated, and we, like Adam, will walk with God in the cool of the garden day and night. That's where you're going. That's who you are. That's what you're preparing for. And right now, that's what's happening. You need to know that and live in light of that and embrace that and consider that so that you don't lose hope and you don't think that your time worshiping God is time poorly spent. They continue. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. There it is. It's worship forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Their worship it is three things. It is singing, it is surrendering, and it is stewarding. And these are the three elements and aspects of worship that we as a brand new church family, I really want you to understand these. First of all, it's singing. They're crying out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He who was, is, and is to come. When we sing, you need to know this, that your song and my song and our song in some supernatural revelatory way that I do not fully comprehend, it travels beyond the roof into the presence of God. It does. That as the angels are singing and the departed saints are singing, so we on the earth are participating in that great choral praising of God. Friends, when we sing, God is present with us and our songs are present with him. You need to know that. Some of you struggle in life because you feel alone, you feel abandoned, you feel betrayed. You need to remind yourself of God's presence. And sometimes we do that simply by singing. By singing, by singing. We don't live in a culture that sings much except for its sporting events and those are religious in nature. Oftentimes men will be like, I love God, I believe the Bible, but I don't sing, I'm a man. Well, angels sing and elders sing and you guys do sing. You go to a hockey game or you go to a football game. We will, we will. See, you sing. You just sing really bad songs at inappropriate times. So they sing. They sing. When we come together to sing, I need you to know that this is a spiritual activity and it's a declaration of war. It is saying, our king rules, our king reigns, our king's coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
He is holy, holy, holy. He was, he is, he is to come. There's no one like him. There's no one alongside of him. There's no one equal to him. There is no one who will defeat him. There is no one who rules alongside of him. There is no one that rules over him. And there is no one that is worthy other than him. It's a declaration of spiritual war. It's singing. They also are surrendering. What do they do? Well, there's a big throne. There's 24 little thrones. And here are the rulers, the leaders. They get off their throne. You know the key to worship? You gotta get off your throne. You gotta get off your throne. You're not the center of your life. You're not the authority in your life. You're not the king over your life. And you're not the savior of your life. I'm gonna tell you something highly offensive, but tremendously helpful. You're the problem, not the solution. Self-help ain't very helpful. We all need God's help. We need someone to teach us, to forgive us, to love us, to seek us, to save us. We need a source of life beyond ourselves. We need a source of love beyond ourselves. We need a source of forgiveness and hope and help and healing beyond ourselves. And when we get off our throne, that's when we start to participate in the worship life that God intends for us so that his life flows to us. Some of you just need, I love you, I'm your pastor. I know it sounds like I'm angry, I'm actually worried. Man, if you live your whole life sitting on your little throne, trying to build your little kingdom, trying to get your little way, and trying to get everybody and everything to orbit around you so that you live in a position of glory, you're trying to be God, and that is going to end badly for you. You will either fail and be miserable or succeed and be miserable. But you will be miserable because that's not what you were made for. You were not made to be on a throne. You were made to get off your throne. And what they do is they find themselves literally face down. This is the posture in the position of surrender. This is what a soldier does when they stop warring. This is what a criminal does when they stop fighting. This is what we do when we stop sinning. We surrender. Now, let me say this. Some of you will ask this question. I can just kind of sense it. Isn't God a megalomaniac? Isn't God an egomaniac? Isn't there something wrong with a God who put himself in the center of the universe and we're all to get off our thrones and we're all to fall face down and we're all to worship him? Let me tell you, God does that for our need, not his. I'll hit this in a moment. God doesn't need your worship. You're the one who needs to worship. God is doing fine. You're the one with all the troubles. They get off their little thrones. Some of you are trying to set up your own kingdom with a throne that you sit on and everyone and everything serving you. That's demonic. We get off our thrones, we sing, we surrender, and we steward. What do they take? Their crowns. You know what your crown is? That's your power and your wealth. The two things that we love the most, right? This is what we put on our social media accounts. If we have something nice, we take a photo of it and show everybody. I'm important, look. Here's what I eat, here's what I drink, here's what I wear, here's where I live, here's what I drive, here's who I'm married to. You should, you should pay attention to me in all my glory and then you should talk about how glorious I am. All of my achievements and possessions and accomplishments, they take all of their wealth and all of their power and they literally set it at the feet of Jesus. And what they're saying is, my little throne is for his kingdom. All of my wealth is for his kingdom. All of my power is for his kingdom, not mine. If you don't sing, you don't worship. If you don't surrender, you don't worship. If you don't steward the resources, the money and the wealth and the power and the fame that God has given you, you don't worship. Worship is not just a style and genre of music that is safe for the whole family to be played in the minivan on the way to school. It can include that. I actually was listening to Christian radio recently and I raised my hand. I, I was worshiping God in my Jeep. It can be that, but if you limit it only to that, 
then you miss the whole point that it is singing and surrendering and stewarding. It is getting off of our throne and falling before a throne. It is having ourselves not be the center of our life, but the Lord Jesus in all of his glory at the right hand of the Father being the center of our life. It is not living so that we would get our will done, but that his will would come and that our kingdom wouldn't be built, that we would instead be about building his kingdom. So let me, let me, let me share with you a couple of things. I'll call them two throne truths. God needs no one, but everyone needs God. Okay. When it comes to worship, there are often people who ask, why does God demand so much from me? God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need us. God doesn't lack anything. God doesn't need anyone. God is self-sufficient. Some religions falsely teach that God made us because he's lonely. He wasn't the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, one God and three persons. Love, adoration, praise, worship, companionship, all needs met. All desires met, no lack, want, or need of any sort or kind. But you and I and we need God. We're not independent beings, we're dependent beings. We don't live well apart from God. We only live right in connection to God. This is how they say it, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created. We come from you, you made us. You know who knows what the purpose of a thing is? It's maker, it's maker. God made you, God made me, and he made us for a purpose. You created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That we need God, and here's the truth. I want you to understand this. God's glory and your good are the exact same thing. The great demonic lie is that God wants something that's bad for you. Why should I do that? That's what God wants. That's not what I want. Why should I give that? That's what God wants. That's not what I want. What I want and what God wants, they're in competition because what I want is good for me and what he wants is good for him. And the truth is what he wants is good for you. It's good for you. And let me say, when you worship God, when you surrender to God, when you trust to God, when you steward the resources that God has given you, when you sing the praises of God who has saved you, here's what you're doing. You're connecting to your creator. You're connecting to the source of life. If you need love, worship God. He's the source of love. You need hope, connect to God. He's the one who ultimately brings hope. You need healing, emotionally, physically, spiritually, connect to the God of the Bible. He is the source of all healing. You struggling with lies, then believe the truth. And you only believe the truth by worshiping the one who tells the truth. Everything we need ultimately is in God. And when we worship God, we receive who God is and what God gives. And then God becomes the source of truth and God becomes the source of hope and God becomes the source of life and God becomes the source of forgiveness. And so what I'm telling you is this, and I'm desperate for your affections, and I want them to be solely for the Lord. And if your affections are for the Lord, and you're in the presence of the Lord, and you're singing the praises of the Lord, it's not just, well, that's what glorifies God. It's also, and that's what I desperately need. And apart from that, there is no life and there is no hope and there is no peace and there is no joy and there is no satisfaction. All it is is vain regrets and idolatry and just me pursuing my throne and ruling over my kingdom and trying to get my minions to worship me. And the more I succeeded that, the more miserable I am. And the more I get off my throne and lay my crown, my, my crown down before the throne, and the more I sing the praises of the one who made me, now all of his life flows to me and his healing flows to me and his love flows to me and his joy flows to me and his life flows to me. And all of a sudden he is glorified and I am satisfied. And that's worship. Some of you are seeking what only God can give in places where God is not present. Number two, God is a worshiper who made us to worship him continually. He says this, I was in the spirit, the Holy Spirit is a worshiper. He worships the son and the father. 
The Son worships the Spirit and the Father. The Father and Son and Spirit, they live in perfect union and communion, praising one another, glorifying one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, serving one another. We only worship by the Spirit. This is why the Lord Jesus has this conversation. He says, the Father is seeking worshipers, worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Through the truth, we know who God is, and by the power of the Spirit, we enter into his presence to sing his praises. You cannot worship apart from the Holy Spirit. This is why we pray for other religions. We don't pray with other religions. They pray to a different God by a different spirit. That you were made to worship. That's where it says day and night, they never cease. Worship never ends. You need to know that not only does worship never end in heaven, it never ends down here. That it is unbroken and unceasing. And, and we want to live our lives, not earth up, but thrown down. Amen? Not earth up, thrown down. God, who are you? What's your reality? What's it like? What's it gonna be like? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not trying to take this world and make it last. We're looking forward to it going away and your kingdom coming. And when we worship, we're participating in a kingdom activity. And you need to know that because you were made to worship, God is a worshiper, unceasing, outpouring, appraising. You were made in the image and likes of God. You and I all worship. I need you to get this. I love you. This is crucial. This is key. Everyone is only always worshiping. The only difference is the object of worship. The object of worship. The object of worship. That's why when we die and we go into God's presence, there's no mirror, just a throne because we're not the center. It's not about us. It doesn't rotate and revolve around us. It's not that we're gazing upon our glory and then prayer parroting our accolades for all eternity where others cheer us because of all we are and haven't done. Instead, when we worship, we are acknowledging who God is and what God has done and how we're desperate for him and how we need him. But you need to know that if you don't worship God, you will worship. You'll worship someone or something other than God. And like I told you, that leads to death, not life. That doesn't bring love, that brings hatred. That doesn't bring forgiveness, that brings bitterness. That doesn't bring satisfaction, that brings misery. Only in the worship of God are God's people satisfied and their desires gratified. This is why, dear friends, if you don't worship God, you'll worship someone or something. You'll worship your spouse, you'll worship your kids, you'll worship your job, you'll worship your health, you'll worship your beauty, you'll worship your sexual prowess, you'll worship your resume, you'll worship your reputation, you'll wor worship your car, you'll worship your house, you'll worship your sports teams, you'll worship your family. If God isn't at the center, someone or something else will go into the center. It'll be the priority of your life. All of your life will orbit around it. That is what the Bible means by idolatry and idolatry leads to misery. And worshiping God leads to glory. You and I are all worshiping. You want me to prove it to you? Okay, let's have a talk. Let me, let me have a sip. Okay, this is gonna, okay, buckle your seatbelt. Here we go, you ready? I'll prove it to you. I've got a friend who's an NFL coach. Had dinner at our house last night, gave me four tickets for my sons and I to go to a particular event happening later on today. It is the Cardinals versus the Seahawks. See how we, that's how they say it. That's how cults do it. They train them young. So we, so in Seattle, they say it like this, see, there's, I, that's a cult. I just, thank you for the illustration. Okay. Now on the other side, there will be another God. Okay. So, so there's two gods colliding at 530. Okay? Each God represents a kingdom, okay? And what happens is citizens of each kingdom will get in their Sunday best, right? A jersey with the name of their God on the back and they will, they will march to their church. It's the biggest church in the whole valley. It's in fact a stadium. Now it's, it's, it's disguised as a stadium, but God really knows it's a temple. It's a church. And so what happens is these two kingdoms, each with their king, 
right, and his mighty warriors, they will take the field of battle to see which king and kingdom will emerge triumphant and victorious. Now to participate, you need to, need to make a sacrifice. Firstly of your time. So there's a lot of guys who are like, I can't go to church, it's football season. That's my first religion, my backup religion is Christianity. I will see you whenever our team is done playing. Okay, now what happens as well, it costs a lot of money. We got bad tickets up in what Paul calls the third heaven. It's <laughs> way up there. But our bad tickets are $109 each at face value. Plus we have to pay for parking, plus jerseys, plus food, right? Imagine if tickets to church were $109, <laughs> right? We could meet in a phone booth. We wouldn't need all this. This would be way too much. Okay, so you get in the car, you sacrifice your time, and all of a sudden now the team becomes the center of your week. You follow all the statistics, who's in or injured, fantasy football, when does the game begin, tailgating party, lay out the jersey, go through the sacred ritual, because we're all just a bunch of pagans when it comes to sports. Get in your car, go to the tailgating party, get together with everyone else who's part of your kingdom, get your colors on, Sunday best, march in, and then What's the center? It's worship. Somebody said, it's not worship. Oh, if you were a Hebrew 3,000 years ago, right, and we just sort of, you know, flicked you into an NFL stadium 3,000 years later, and you might be like, this is the craziest religion I've ever seen. <laughs> They've got girls and a band and $1,000 churro, and people are happy. <laughs> They're wearing jerseys. You know what it says in Romans 1? It says that we'll either worship the creator or the created. When we worship the created, we tend to worship mortal men and sexuality. And we also take on emblems and, and logos made to look like animals and birds. Huh. <laughs> Let's just field test that for a minute. Animal, like a dolphin or a bear or a lion? How about birds, like a Seahawk or a Cardinal? <laughs> See, we practice what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Oh, those pagans back in the day, they were so foolish and, and, and so wrong. And they're, and they're like, you, you pay hundreds of dollars to cheer for a man carrying a pig over a line. And men show up for this who don't show up for church. And men who would never do this in church will do this in the stadium, right? Guys who, oh, I, the wives are like, please do more of that. <laughs> say that again, say it loud. I'm gonna record it on my phone because my husband's not here. I'm gonna text it to him. <laughs> He's home watching the game, that pagan, okay? I agree with you, sister. That's why I'm here for it, okay? Let me say this, we tend to look at things as work, recreation, leisure, and sport. God tends to look at them as acts of worship. Football is a great sport, it's a horrible religion. Golf is an okay sport, <laughs> but it's a horrible religion. Do you get that? I want you to go to Sedona and worship Jesus and say, nice job. Thanks, Lord, can't wait to see what else you've got in mind. This is the fallen cursed corner. Can't wait to see the whole thing in the kingdom. Once you go to the Grand Canyon and say, wow, this, this is amazing. I can't wait to see the unveiled glory of God for all eternity. I wonder what that's gonna feel like and worship God. I want you to go to a football game and say, this is a great sport and a bad religion. And you know what's interesting? People tie their emotional hopes to their team. It's crazy, right? If, if your team loses Monday on talk radio, Sports talk radio, it's a funeral. It's a funeral. <laughs> Middle-aged men, just sad. Oh, they died, they just died. <laughs> Tony, do you think they'll resurrect next Sunday? I don't know, Tom, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. We're hoping for resurrection, but our God really got a beating. You know, I, I... All of life is spiritual, all of life is worship. The only difference it's who we worship or what we worship or, or how we worship. And here's why I want you to know this is so important. This is my final point. Worship is war. Worship is a declaration against Satan and demons. 
Worship is saying God is at the center, no one and no thing else. I can prove it to you. Here's the Lord Jesus. He's on the earth. Here's what happens in Matthew 4. The devil. We believe in Satan. We believe in demons. We believe in the demonic. Some people say, I don't. Then he's already won. Then he's already won. We believe in Satan and demons and the demonic. And we believe that there is this cosmic battle between two kings and kingdoms, the creator and the created. And we believe that God knows if we worship him, we will have life and joy. And Satan knows if he can get us to worship anyone or anything else, then he can drag us into destruction and death with him. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What would be the most tempting thing for you? Oh, wealth, beauty, fame, sexuality, power, pleasure, skill, ability, talent, achievement, comfort. What would your thing be? The one thing that you long for, the one thing that you hope for, the one thing that your heart is set upon other than Jesus. He is running Jesus by all of the options that all of you might have, and he is doing so in an instant. And in this demonic supernatural moment, he's saying, do you want this? 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 Do you want all of it? Do you want all of it? I'll give it to you in exchange for just, just one thing. Worship me. Satan will trade your soul for anything. He doesn't care what he gives you as long as he gets you. And he said, all these I will give you, just want one thing, just to trade. Fall down, Jesus. Worship me. Worship me. Anytime we want God to worship us, it's demonic. Anytime we want to be in the position of glory, it's demonic. Anytime we want to be the center, it's demonic. Anytime we believe that God exists, to glorify us, it's demonic, satanic. Satan is inviting Jesus, I will give you anything and everything you want in exchange for one thing, worship me. You know what this tells me? Worship is the most powerful act of any living person on the earth. Worship is the issue. Once the worship issue is settled, all the issues are settled. If you worship Jesus, you will not be an alcoholic worshiping alcohol. If you worship Jesus, you will not be a drug addict worshiping drugs. If you worship Jesus, you will not be codependent seeking from those relationships what only a relationship with God can provide. Whoever or whatever you are addicted to, entangled with, tempted by, you worshiped your way into trouble, you worship your way out of trouble. You worship something to get you into harm's way, you worship God to get you out of harm's way. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, here it is, the one issue, the bottom line. If we could just change this, then everything would be different. Who gets to be worshiped? Who gets to be worshiped? And I need you to see what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. You wanna get rid of temptation? You wanna get rid of oppression? You wanna get rid of accusation? You tired of being haunted by the demonic? You want to get rid of that evil oppression that resides over your life? Here's the answer. You can tell Satan by the power of God to be gone, but then you must do this. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The way that we declare spiritual war, the way that we do war against powers, principalities, and spirits... And I need you to know, when I preach, I don't just preach to you. There's an entire invisible audience that we do not see. Powers, principalities, spirits, and the demonic. They harass, they harm people, they oppress, they damage people. When we sing of God's praises, we are declaring war. 
We are saying our king, not that false king. We're saying that kingdom, no other kingdom. We are saying that we come from God. We belong to God. We serve God. We will stand before God. And in the presence of God, the people of God will forever sing the praises of God. And that starts right now. And it echoes into eternity without any end. And you need to know that worship is a declaration of war. It's a war. It is a war. And people are being held hostage and taken captive in war. And we want to be captives who are set free, who see God set captives free. And all of that happens when God is worshiped. Amen? Amen. Father God, as we come now to be your people, who enjoy your presence and sing your praises. Lord, I pray for these people. I have the great honor of being their pastor. I love them. I like them. I long for them to worship you. God, I pray for us that we would see that this is so significant and important. That Lord God, not only is worship for your glory, it's for our good that if we don't worship you, we worship someone or something else and we do so to our own destruction. Lord Jesus, thank you that you show us what it's like to be a spirit-filled worshiper, that when Satan tempted you, when he tested you, when he tormented you, you quoted the scriptures and you worshiped. Lord Jesus, we know that you're seeking those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. You spoke the truth and you worship by the power of the Spirit. Lord Jesus, please send to the Trinity Church right now, the Holy Spirit, to remind us of your presence, to give us a glimpse of your glory, to allow us to see you as you are, ruling, reigning, high, exalted, seated upon a throne, crowns at your feet, leaders on their face, Angels in a triumphant chorus of unity singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Lord Jesus, we long for your coming. We look for your coming. And we come as your people in your presence to sing your praises. And we ask your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as we partake of communion, remind us of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. As we sing, let us enjoy your presence. And God, for those who need prayer, I pray they'd step off to the side so that we can encourage them in the spirit, in Jesus' name.